the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey guys, it's Morgan Zeggers. We've got some fun topics for you today. Welcome back to the show. I hope that you feel informed after you listen. I hope I'm talking loud enough for the truckers. Thank you so much for listening. I'm sorry for my soft voice, but we have been trying the last week. I hope I'm doing a good job making you proud. Um, listen, an invasion was just declared at the southern border, but by counties... People are now saying Governor Abbott needs to step up and do the same at a state level because that would have federal implications. In our system of federalism, there's there's checks and balances. There's certain uh, areas where the federal government is in control. The state governments, though, can do their own things. But with immigration, it gets really complicated. But if a state declares invasion... That really changes the game. Now, there's some updates on this. People are pretty disappointed, actually, because Governor Greg Abbott didn't go as far as they were hoping in this game. So we're going to have to see what happened there. Um, There's also some new information on the shooting from the 4th of July that I want to talk about. There's a weird story about Bill Gates buying more farmland in America Hmm. Uh, there's a story of basically the death of the West. We're seeing yet another country that used to embrace freedom and choice and representative government just completely falters totalitarian, tyrannical government behavior of force. Uh, we're seeing right now farmers that are protesting over in the Netherlands getting shot at. Love to see it. People are comparing it to what happened in Canada. And uh, last story, a hilarious <laughs> Just a hilarious little chuckle story that I wanted to add because it's kind of a heavy episode. Um, there's this leftist coffee shop that has gone so far into the woke mob behavior that the employees are now demanding that the owners of the woke coffee shop that identify as woke people themselves must redistribute the ownership of the coffee shop to the coffee shop employees. <laughs> it's just... Oh, man, it really gives me a chuckle. Um, So I wanted to read that out loud for you because they, like, gave a list of grievances as coffee shop employees, how they're being oppressed by their own woke coffee shop owners. (laughs) I can't even say it without laughing. Um, We'll get into the show. Let's go. (laughs) All right, let's get started. First article I'm looking at is from The Federalist. I love The Federalist, okay? Um, Texas counties say the border crisis is an invasion. They're not wrong. Now, you guys, I'm going to read this out because the understanding of the constitutional implications of declaring an invasion are very important. I don't want to... I don't want to give you a Morgan version. I'd rather give you The Federalist version, and then we could talk about it. It says... A handful of Texas counties on Tuesday declared the ongoing border crisis an invasion and called on Texas Governor Greg Abbott to do the same, citing constitutional authority for states to act in self-defense in the face of federal inaction. So I thought about this, too. Uh, I remember, especially on Freedom Papers, when I'm talking with Connor, when we go through the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist Papers, I talked to him about, well, what do we do in a situation of basically dereliction of duty by the federal government, by the Biden administration, allowing massive amounts of illegal immigrants to just come across the border, when does it become dereliction of duty and when can the states step up and into that role, even though technically it's not supposed to be their role? Because it's not like the states are the ones in the wrong. The federal government is failing to do its job and then the states are told, hey, you can't do this because it's not your job. Well, someone's got to do it. So I've been asking that question for a long time. That's why I'm so excited about this story. So continuing on, it says um, officials from Kinney, Uvalde, and Goliad, maybe I'm pronouncing that wrong, counties, said the Biden administration has refused to secure the border and enforce the law, and that although Abbott has done much to support local communities in South Texas most affected by the crisis, he needs to do more. Namely, he needs to follow their lead and declare an invasion. County officials, of course, can't do anything about illegal immigration on their own, but their argument is that Abbott, as governor of Texas, can. This is exciting. (laughs) 
Okay, maybe this is not as exciting for other people. But guys, understand how cool this is. This is a perfect example of of federalism, and I'm so excited to see this play out in terms of what the courts say, because of course this is going to the courts. Um, Let's see. They cite Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3 of the Constitution, which says that states can't do things like conduct foreign policy or engage in war, quote, unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit delay end quote you tracking those three words quote unless actually invaded end quote are the crux of the argument the idea that states have the constitutional power to act on their own to enforce immigration law and police the border has been gaining ground for some time now yeah because the federal government is supposed to be in charge of it but they aren't doing it and so that doesn't mean oh i guess nobody will do it no The states are saying, we have our own sovereign borders and we're going to protect our citizens. We're going to fulfill the duty if our federal government won't do it. Basic checks and balances, if you ask me. Okay, former Trump administration officials such as Ross Vaught and Ken Cuccinelli, both now at the Center for Renewing America, have made a case for unilateral state action on the border. Cuccinelli, former acting deputy Homeland Security secretary under Trump, was at the press conference on Tuesday in Texas. He said, quote, this is the first time in American history that a legal authority has found as a matter of law that the United States is being invaded. He said later adding what we're talking about is an operation that looks a lot like Title 42. So Title 42 is the thing that just got uh, taken down regarding covid. That is, declaring a, quote, invasion means that state law enforcement at the direction of the Texas governor would directly arrest and expel to Mexico illegal immigrants in much the same manner as Border Patrol and U.S. Customs and Border Protection now does under Title 42, the pandemic health order that allows federal authorities to expel illegal immigrants with minimal processing. So here's the thing. uh, Just a little rant. I thought it was kind of ridiculous that people kept propping up Title 42 and this COVID restriction because, in my opinion, COVID's long over. And yes, it's nice to be able to use a COVID restriction in our benefit to get illegal immigrants out of the country because the Biden administration wasn't doing it other than for this. And so it's nice to use that to our advantage. But at the end of the day, we shouldn't have to use some weird COVID restriction, especially when we're three years out from the start of COVID, to justify getting rid of illegal immigrants and actually having strong borders policy. We shouldn't have to go around in these loops. We should be able to just have basic uh, common sense immigration law and expectations. So I wish that we didn't have to go and make all these fancy justifications that shouldn't be needed. But I digress. So the article goes back, says, so far, Abbott has been reluctant to take this route, instead attempting lesser measures such as arresting and prosecuting illegal border crossers for criminal trespass or ordering onerous state inspections at ports of entry as a way to pressure his Mexican counterparts to stop migrants in Mexico before they cross the border. These lesser measures, however, have not done anything to stem the flow of illegal immigration, which continues month over month to set new records. Perhaps it's time for Abbott to listen to these local officials and also to people like Congressman Chip Roy from Texas, who was at the press conference. Ooh, good for him. And he said, we should declare an invasion and as Texas, turn people away. Ooh, Chip Roy. I didn't know that he said that. Okay, he seems great. I'd love to meet him. Okay, continuing. Arguably, Abbott already bought into this more expansive constitutional interpretation of state authority when he struck security agreements with the governors of the four Mexican states bordering Texas back in April. So this is the thing, too. Constitutionally, states should not be making uh, foreign policy or working in this way. But and, and people are saying, well, maybe Abbott isn't declaring invasion because it's not his authority to do so. But people are saying, uh-uh, that really can't be his justification because he already kind of went above his authority when making agreements with foreign countries. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, after all, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3 of the Constitution states that States are not allowed to, quote, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power 
or engage in war unless actually invaded. Interesting. By entering into security agreements with, quote, another state or a foreign power, end quote, it would seem Abbott has tacitly acknowledged not only that his state has been actually invaded, but that he has the constitutional authority to act in its defense. Interesting point. So then why wouldn't he go another step further to declare invasion? That's the big question. If that's the case, oh, look at that. Guys, I got too far ahead of myself. The article then says, if that's the case, why not take the next step and avail himself of the considerable law enforcement and military resources at his disposal to secure the border and expel illegal immigrants? Okay, so here's where it gets a little sassy. Okay, we're going to pause for the cause because a car alarm is going off outside. I hope you guys are having a nice day. (laughs) I don't know how long it's going to go. Maybe I'll go get a snack and come back. Bye-bye. Okay, we're back. The alarm is off. Getting back to the article, it says, it gets a little sassy. Okay, it says maybe Abbott, secure in the state capital of Austin, is just taking longer to reach this conclusion than the people of South Texas who are bearing the brunt of this border crisis. Now, guys, I didn't know what they're about to say here. I didn't know that this is the case. It says, indeed, among the hundreds of thousands of people crossing the border illegally every month, that number hurts my heart, are now a not insignificant number of people who do not want to be arrested and whose presence on U.S. territory could be reasonably considered hostile. So what he's saying is a a growing number of people coming across the border are now trying to evade officers. It says, unlike the migrant families who turn themselves into Border Patrol, the first agent that they see, These new people often attempt to evade authorities, which gives rise to things like high-speed chases through small towns and over private lands. Across Texas border communities, this has become a serious and worsening problem since President Biden took office. I did not know that. Interesting. It says some of these chases end in damaged property, some end in fatal car crashes. I don't know if you guys saw, um, I know Congresswoman Myra Flores uh, from down near McAllen, down in Texas, she posted a video of basically a bunch of illegal immigrants were in a vehicle, they had been apprehended, and one of them jumps out of the car and starts chasing or running off. And so he gets chased after he sprints into the road and gets killed by a car right away because he ran into oncoming traffic on a highway. And then as that's happening, all the rest of the people that were stuck in the car, they pop out of the car too and start sprinting off the other direction into a field. And so it's just massive chaos. And the guy died. It's very sad. Um, But it says some of those chases end in damaged property, some end in fatal car crashes like we saw. But it says sometimes the attempt to evade detection ends not with a chase, but a horrifying tragedy like the one in San Antonio last month where 53 migrants were found dead in the tractor trailer. And I talked to you guys about that uh, on a recent episode. It says corporate media outlets, to the extent they cover the border crisis at all, because they barely do, will likely only mention efforts to declare the crisis an invasion in order to mock it or smear the people arguing for it as racists and bigots. But it is not some crackpot idea. In February, Arizona Attorney General Mark Brnovich issued a legal opinion affirming that the border crisis constitutes an invasion and that the governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey, has the authority under the Constitution to secure its border with Mexico. Now, very, very interesting. Now, I, I don't want to go too far into this, but I love it. At the end, John Daniel Davidson, the senior editor at The Federalist, he writes, And anyway, if there's a constitutional question to be settled here, why not step forward now, set down a marker, enforce the law, and see how it plays out? If states really have no power to repel an invasion, no ability to defend their people and police their borders in the face of federal inaction, then we might as well admit now that we no longer live in a constitutional republic and that states, whatever they once were, have been reduced to nothing more than administrative units of a centralized regime in Washington. There's a word for such a political arrangement, empire. Now, 
If you listen to Freedom Papers with Turning Point USA, where me and my friend Connor Clegg go through all the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers, back when they were trying to convince all the states to ratify, to vote to ratify the U.S. Constitution, you'll remember and you'll know that back then when we had the Articles of Confederation, it was basically too weak to continue. It was falling apart and it wasn't going to end well. And it was because it only made uh, a league almost. Think of a league, a team of sovereign states that acted as their own little countries, but were brought together in this contract of, yeah, we're all going to work together. And so if we get invaded, we'll all volunteer and send military members, we'll send some money, and we'll all work together as one entity, as one country to uh, represent ourselves on the world stage and protect against any dangers. The problem, when you look at that historical issue, was, well, when big problems started to come, there was really no way to expect the states to actually send money or troops or act as team players as a part of a league because they were a little bit more selfish and only cared about themselves. And that's totally understandable. So the Constitution was proposed as our second attempt at government to create a stronger federal entity. The anti-federalists were worried that the creation of this would lead to a tyrannical, large, centralized government that wouldn't be checked, whereas the federalists argued that we have a strong system of checks and balances being established in the Constitution that would prevent tyrannical abuse of power. So you can I, I I see where the anti-federalists came on a lot of the issues. I see where the federalists were coming from on a lot of the issues. I think it was smart that the ending result was not only a constitution but a bill of rights. That's how they convinced the anti-federalists to vote in favor of ratification. Um, It's a very cool story. But, you guys, this is kind of what they were talking about. Of The whole point of our country is supposed to be that sovereign states are willingly joining in. They voted to join into the United States of America and be a part, uh, smaller parts of a whole. But they still would have a majority of their their business and their governance taking place at a state level. But when it came to those larger issues, we would have that one federal entity. Obviously, things have changed. And what they're saying right here, what John Daniel Davidson, Davidson is saying from The Federalist is, Clearly, we are no longer a situation of a constitutional republic, which is a creation of different states that join together for the republic. Instead, it looks like we're all just being dictated by a centralized regime in Washington. So, ooh, that hurts. Um, let's look at, though, what happened next. So with this new demand coming to the table with counties declaring invasion and then asking the state leader, Governor Abbott, to declare invasion. Let's see what ended up happening. Uh, I'm looking at July 7th. So this is kind of happening as we're recording and as we're releasing this. So sorry if the the news changes quickly, you guys. But um, as of July 7th, Governor Abbott authorized Texas National Guard to apprehend illegal immigrants and return them to the border. It says Governor Greg Abbott today issued an executive order authorizing and empowering the Texas National Guard and Texas Department of Public Safety to apprehend illegal immigrants who illegally cross the border between ports of entry and return them to the border. It says the Biden administration's decision to end Title 42 expulsions and the Remain in Mexico policy has led to historic levels of illegal crossings, with 5,000 migrants being apprehended over the July 4th weekend, creating a border crisis that has overrun communities along the border and across Texas. Uh, As noted in this executive order, the Biden administration, quote, has abandoned the covenant in Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution that the United States shall protect each state in this union against invasion and thus has forced the the state of Texas to build a border wall, deploy state military forces, and enter into agreements as described in Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution to secure the state of Texas and repel the illegal immigration that funds the cartels. Hmm, this is so cool. Now, what's interesting is that Abbott's office did not respond to a request for comment from the Post about whether he was bending to pressure by former Trump official Ken Cuccinelli to declare an invasion of the border. While Abbott did not issue an invasion declaration, he used the exact language Cuccinelli coached several Texas counties to use in declaring a border invasion on Tuesday. Hmm. Interesting. So Cuccinelli says the governor does not appear to formally declare an invasion nor direct the National Guard and Department of Public Safety to remove illegals across the border and directly to Mexico. 
That is critical. Otherwise, this is still a catch and release. Hmm. I wonder why he didn't declare invasion. I guess that's that's the next question here. But speaking speaking of immigration, speaking of of just basic common sense, here's another interesting constitutional question that we have. And if you guys have been listening, you know I love the book Age of Entitlement. And Age of Entitlement poses this this concept that we're dealing with two constitutions here, one before the Civil Rights Act, basically, and one after. When the Civil Rights Act was passed, it basically greenlighted the government in Washington, D.C., the federal government, to have uh, control of every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our society. And it created this leadership by litigation, not leadership by legislation, which we're supposed to have in a constitutional republic. We're supposed to make laws to... uh, mitigate the problems in society and to handle what we're dealing with. But instead, now, if you don't like something politically, you could just sue the other party and cause massive problems. So we see this right now, and I'm going to show you an example. I'm looking at uh, something from the Epoch Times. Biden administration sues Arizona over a law requiring voters to prove they're U.S. citizens. Sounds simple, right? Arizona requires that you show proof of citizenship when you're registering to vote. That's all. Now, the Biden administration, with everything going on in the country, two days ago decides to what? Dedicate resources and time and government power and energy into suing Arizona for making its voters prove their citizens before partaking in elections. Let's see what happened here. And you'll hear, you're going to hear it, the Civil Rights Act. Okay. President Joe Biden's administration on July 5th sued Arizona over a law that requires voters to prove they're U.S. citizens. What a sentence. The law, House Bill 2492, violates two federal statutes, the U.S. Department of Justice said in a 17-page complaint. Wow, I love their priorities. Um, one of those statutes requires states to accept a federal form to register voters. And the form does not require voters to prove their citizenship. Quote, as long as an individual completes the federal form and meets all of its requirements and is otherwise eligible to vote, states must register that individual to vote. The Arizona law requires applicants to provide, quote, satisfactory evidence of citizenship. Is that so bad? Is that so bad? Examples of such evidence include a copy of a birth certificate a copy of a passport, and a copy of naturalization documents. County recorders under the law are ordered to reject applicants who do not satisfy the requirement. So right now we have a federal regulation law, I should say, that apparently requires states to accept a federal form as a voter's attempt to become a voter when they're first sending in that application. But the state of Arizona is saying, no, you also have to prove your citizenship according to our state law. So the federal government is suing the state for having its own individual requirement to become a voter. And then it's telling a county level individual working for the government to follow and abide and enforce this state level law. So the federal government is trying to infringe on a state's election law. Continuing. State lawmakers passed the law in March. Governor Doug Ducey, a Republican, signed the bill that month. Quote, election integrity means counting every lawful vote and providing an attempt to illegally or prohibiting any attempt to illegally cast a vote. Now, here's where things get interesting. It says that uh, opposition to this, the DOJ lawyers are citing a violation of the National Voter Registration Act. But most important to me is they say that it violates the Civil Rights Act. How could it possibly violate the Civil Rights Act to ask a citizen to prove they're a citizen before voting in an election in America? Huh. Okay. It says the law violates part of the Civil Rights Act that bars officials from rejecting voter applicants, quote, because of an error or omission on any record or paper relating to any application, registration, or other act requisite to voting, If such error or omission is not material in determining whether such individual is qualified under state law to vote in such election, the suit asserts. So the lawyers for the federal government 
said that this should be blocked immediately. Arizona Attorney General, and again, you guys, this is just Arizona saying, please provide proof that you're a citizen when you are trying to apply to become a voter in our state. Not so bad. How is, how is asking an individual to provide documentation proving a basic thing like citizenship a violation of civil rights? Do you see how it just doesn't make sense? Arizona Attorney General Mark Brnovich, he's got a strict, his last name is B-R-N-O-V-I-C-H. Interesting. He says he's a Republican running for U.S. Senate, but he's also currently Attorney General of Arizona. He said that he will fight this legal action against the DOJ. He said, quote, please be assured that I will defend this law to the U.S. Supreme Court if necessary. Huh. He then, this is so good, he questions why the administration, quote, would use its resources to challenge a common sense law in Arizona designed to guard against non-citizen voting when the Biden administration is simultaneously opening our borders to encourage a flood of illegal immigration, end quote. Yeah, very suspicious. This is the thing, though. For a long time, we, we couldn't say it out loud. You know what I mean? Everybody was a little nervous to say it out loud, and you get accused of, of being a, a bad person for saying that the Democrats might be attempting to do something like this. Um, but I think at this point, how can you come to any other conclusion of, wait, so you're, you're trying to sue a state for expect at the border. You're trying to, to sue a swing state, an important purple swing state, at the southern border that's experiencing massive amounts of illegal immigration coming across the southern border right now. You're trying to sue them for just asking people to prove that they're citizens before registering. And it's the summer before an important election. What else are we supposed to uh, see out of this situation? What other conclusions are we supposed to arrive at? I don't know. I'm glad that he, he asked this, though. You don't hear a lot of people asking that kind of stuff these days, at least publicly. It says, under Biden, the U.S. has recorded record levels of apprehensions of illegal immigrants with no sign of crisis abating. Here's what's interesting, too. He says, quote, is the federal government attempting to undermine our sovereignty and destabilize our election infrastructure? I hope that is not your intention. I strongly urge you to reconsider your pursuit of this misguided suit and to instead recognize Arizona's constitutional authority to conduct lawful and secure elections. Now, bingo. That's a big point here, you guys. It is the responsibility, the constitutional authority of states to handle elections. Did you know that? There you go. Now, what's interesting on top of that is that the Democrats, the left, are they're trying to federalize elections. If you look up uh, some of the legislation that they're trying to pass, I can't remember the name of it right now, but they're trying to pass a sweeping bill, and they say it's you know to prevent. They're they're using the usual racist um, buzzwords, but they're saying that to promote access to voting for all Americans. We need to federalize elections. And that is completely unconstitutional. It's the duty of the states to do this. And when the federal government takes power over such important things like this, it never goes well. Okay. The intention of the government at the federal level was supposed to be strong, but small, strong, but small. Now, back to this, Paul Gosar, love him, congressman from Arizona, he said it was frivolous. He says, quote, Arizona law requires one to be a citizen to vote, as does federal law. Just like showing ID to buy alcohol or rent a hotel room, none of which are discriminatory, showing your ID to vote is easy, common, and necessary. But what did the Democrats say about this? We have a Democrat, Ruben uh, Galejo, I don't know, uh, he's a Democrat from Arizona, and he says, quote, it's wrong to force Arizonans to jump through hoops to vote, and AZ Republicans are betting on the radical right-wing Supreme Court to uphold these laws. <sighs> Glad to see the Justice Department filed this suit to protect the rights of Arizona voters. Are you kidding me? Okay, jump through hoops. Is it really a big hoop to have to jump through to show your basic ID when you go to register to vote? The most important thing you do as an American is vote. But to do everything else, like buy alcohol, rent a hotel room, and do most other adult things, you have to show your ID. Is that ever considered jumping through a hoop? No.
It's really unfortunate that they have to play this game and act like people aren't capable enough of showing an ID for one of the most important things they'll do as citizens. Now, you guys, let's move on. So uh, I was looking through the stories of what's gone on this week, and something else caught my eye. I don't want to spend too much time on it right now because it's still developing, but really did catch my attention. Uh, And it's about the shooting on the 4th of July. I want to read a little thing for you. So I'm looking at this here from Fox News. Headline is, Police flagged Highland Park shooter as clear and present danger in 2019. He then went on to clear four background checks. Uh, The suspect in the Highland Park, Illinois, 4th of July mass shooting was flagged by police as a clear and present danger in 2019. The suspect in the mass shooting that killed seven people and wounded dozens of others at a 4th of July parade was still able to clear state-required background checks to purchase firearms on at least four separate occasions between 2020 and 2021, the Illinois State Police said. In September 2019, ISP received a clear and present danger report on the subject from the Highland Park Police Department. The report was related to threats the subject made against his family. The report said that when Highland Park officers went to the family's home and asked him if he felt like harming himself or others, he said no. The statement said police did not make any arrests at the time and that members of the family were, quote, not willing to move forward on a complaint. Members of the family also did not, quote, provide information on threats or mental health that would have allowed law enforcement to take additional action. Additionally, no firearms restraining order was filed, nor any order of protection. Now, there's that first struggle we get here. We're seeing a common pattern with these mass shooters of having a troubled home life, of making threats, and the people in their lives trying to support that family member and saying, oh, he was so quiet, he was, a, he was just a troubled kid, and, and he gave us a hard time, but he was just quiet, and he had some issues, but we never thought that he could do something like this. You have to put yourself in their shoes. I, th- I think a lot of this does fall on, on parents. The blame does fall a lot on how you raise a child. But for the most part, as a society, if we're going to have to start dealing with this, again and again and again, and we're seeing this repeated pattern and we're seeing an increase in the the rise of mental health issues leading to uh, these more violent public situations, we have to say, okay, well, if we're going to write an article about how the police were called for a family situation and then nothing was done about it and the kid went on to buy guns later on, what's the role of the police and the family members in a situation where it just seems like a child is troubled in this way? I'm not saying I have the answer. I'm just saying, wow, we are being confronted with quite an awkward conversation because where is somebody's uh, freedom going to be taken away from them just because maybe they had a little mental episode? What, so so if you have a breakdown and maybe something happens and the police get called, now you will never be able to own a firearm for the rest of your life because as a teenager you had a, a terrible episode and the police got called and your family members reported to the police that, you could potentially be, how, how are they supposed to know what's going to happen? And so I, I truly, it's, it's a question on my mind of what would we expect from the family members and the police officers in these situations? Because this is, it, listen a little bit more and you'll see what I mean. This is so frustrating to see that this is how it went down. So it says, such action police could have taken included revoking a licensed gun owner's firearm owner's identification card. It's an FOID, which is required in the state to own and purchase a firearm. Illinois police said at the time of September 2019, when this incident happened and the police went to his home, he didn't have one of these cards. So it's not like they could revoke it, and it's not like he had a pending application for one of these cards for them to deny. But three months later, after this call happened, he did apply, and he did successfully obtain a card. The subject was under 21, and the application was sponsored by the subject's father. So that brings in another question. If you have a child that you are concerned about, or has had episodes, where do you draw the line 
as a father, how, how aware are you of your child's actual mental state? You know what I mean? I mean, guys, I see what people post on the internet. I've seen people in real life versus their life online that they portray themselves to be versus the life that they actually live with their parents and the lies, the the, the fakeness between each of those situations. And I've also seen a lot of situations where kids are very troubled and their parents have no idea. So all we know right now, and we don't know any of the backstory or how awful it was, or, or maybe it wasn't bad at all and he was just a quiet kid and had one bad day. But we're seeing here that the subject's father sponsored three months after the guy made a violent threat to the family and had the police called on him. The dad went and sponsored his son, to get access to firearms. The family is so fundamental in our society. And what is the government's role in a father's inability to see his wrong ways here? You know what I mean? What is the government's role in something like this? How is the government supposed to know what to do? How is law enforcement supposed to step in in a situation like this? If a a boy's father, knowing him on a more personal level, is willing to sponsor him and give him access to something that maybe the government trusted, okay, well, if we have this situation where you can have a sponsor, then of course the sponsor wouldn't sponsor somebody who shouldn't get access to these things. What a strange little situation this is. Disturbing. So it says the suspect went on to declare four background checks when purchasing firearms. So the incident happened in 2019, but he went on to buy guns in June 9th, on June 9th, 2020, July 18th and July 31st, 2020 and September 20th, 2021. It's really, really sad. It says Illinois State Police said the suspect did not have mental health prohibitor reports on his record and his only criminal offense was a possession of tobacco charge in January 2016. Hmm. So then I did a little more digging and I found another article. This one was from the Post Millennial and it was titled Father Enabled Suspect in July 4th Mass Shooting. So it kind of says the same information, but then it gets more into detail. It says the subject was under 21 and the application was sponsored by the subject's father. The only criminal charge against the suspect prior to the mass shooting was for possession of tobacco in 2016. The parents of the suspect have retained counsel. Hmm. The counsel, his name's Steve Greenberg, he tweeted, the parents of the accused Highland Park shooter have retained us to represent him. them. They wish that we share the following, quote, we are all mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, and this is a terrible tragedy for many families, the victims, the uh, parade goers, and the community. The parents request that all respect their privacy as they try to sort through this tragedy. The statement came the same day a former coach of the shooter said the parents were a, quote, problem and always the last to pick him up from his after-school sports program. Jeremy, who ran an after-school sports program at Lincoln Elementary School, said, quote, I remember the parents more than him because they were kind of a problem. There wasn't a lot of love in that family. He added that, one of them once got into one of the got into it once with one of the heads of the program. She was yelling. It seemed like her kids were a nuisance to her. According to her Facebook page, she is an energy healer, the mom, an energy healer with her company, Trilogy Energy Systems. The father had a local sandwich shop that has since closed. Neighbors told Fox News that the mom seemed unstable while the father was well-liked in the community. He was nice. He always gave the kids free candy and treats. This is where it gets strange. And this is where I don't like when family members come out and they say, oh, he was such a quiet kid. I could never imagine him doing something. Well, guess what? He did it. So maybe you actually didn't know him very well. Maybe you didn't know him very well. And that's part of the problem is that all the family members thought that this person was a different personality and of different character when in reality he was on the inside a mass murderer. Okay. It says, uh, Cremo's uncle, Paul, spoke to a local outlet saying he was, quote, deeply, deeply sorry for the deadly attack 
He was always very respectable. I can't say nothing bad about him. Well, then maybe don't say anything at all. This is one of those situations. Maybe know your place in this thing and don't try and make everybody feel a little bit better by saying, oh, he was a very respectable kid. I can't say anything bad about him. Maybe that's part of the problem is that these, these family members were so aloof. This gets even weirder. The uncle said that he and his brother who in 2019 unsuccessfully ran for mayor of Highland Park, quote, have a good character. Everybody loves us. And this just breaks my heart to hear about all this. Listen, Paul, not the time. Not the time to tell everybody, tell the press that everybody loves you. Everybody loves you and the men in your family. Not a good time. According to Paul, his nephew kept to himself, didn't go to college, and was a, quote, YouTube rapper who previously worked at Panera, but had been recently unemployed. Quote, he's a real quiet kid. He keeps everything to himself, and he doesn't express himself out. He just, like, sits down on his computer. There's no, like, interaction between him and me, basically. (laughs) This is another thing, too. If you look at what this guy, the shooter, was posting on the internet, his raps and everything, the content he was posting, you'd be disturbed. I've seen it. But the family just says, oh, he's just doing his thing. He, he's quiet and he has, he's a YouTube rapper and he, he didn't go to college and, you know, he's, he's unemployed, but he, he's a YouTube rapper and he does his weird thing. You know, kids these days, maybe if they just paid a little bit more attention, I mean, I'm just going to put this out there. That's not normal child behavior or content or anything that he was actually putting out. But because our culture is so disgusting these days, a kid can act like that and just be like, oh, he's just quiet and keeps to himself, a YouTube rapper. It's disturbing. And I cannot get over this family situation of why would you go out and publicly try and like ease the public into thinking that this kid was just a quiet guy? That makes you guys look really bad. It makes you look really bad as if you didn't understand fully what this kid was capable of and what he was actually experiencing. (sighs) But yeah, so that's my thoughts on that. Again, do I have all the answers on this one? No. But I do think there's something to be said, you guys, about how we have to have some some strange, uh, some hard conversations. Some hard conversations about what is the role of of a father, a mother, of families, of community members in situations where we see mental health completely crumbling right now with younger Americans. We're seeing them on the internet all the time behave absolutely crazily. And then we have family members say, oh, they just keep to themselves. They're just quiet kids. Perhaps we need more engagement with the children. Perhaps we need to understand our children on a more fundamental level than just surface level. Oh, he's a quiet kid. He could never do something like that. And when you see family members and say, I don't know how we could possibly do something like that, that alone says so much, if you ask me. Let's move on. Let's move on to last round of headlines because, man, I saw these ones and went, oh, Whoa. Uh, First thing, I'm sure you guys have been seeing this, Dutch government begins Canadian-style crackdown on farmer protests. I'm looking at, once again, from the Federalist. Love them. Uh, It says, For the past several weeks, Dutch farmers in the Netherlands have been engaged in a nationwide protest against their government's new arbitrary climate policies, which demonstrators say will impede their ability to sustain a living. On Monday, dozens of farmers in trucks and tractors parked outside major supermarket distribution centers in cities throughout the country. The blockade comes on the heels of a convoy protest of approximately 40,000 farmers in the central Netherlands, agricultural heartland, last week, which clogged up local roadways and led to standstill traffic. I mean, 40,000 farmers is a lot. Um, Also, I'm very Dutch, so I'm very proud of this story. Not of the government, but of the people. My people. Uh, As Reuters reported, the demonstrations came in response to targets introduced last month by the Dutch government to reduce harmful, quote, nitrogen compounds by 2030. 2030 is the same year, (laughs) unironically, I probably should say. Not ironically, it's literally unironic because this is what's happening. It's all so planned. 2030 is that same year where the World Economic Forum and all the globalists say you're going to own nothing by this year and be happy. Um, so, yes, yeah, so they want to reduce harmful nitrogen compounds by 2030. 
which authorities say are necessary in emissions of nitrogen oxides from farm animal manure and from the use of ammonia and fertilizer. If successfully implemented, the state initiative to go green would almost certainly cripple the country's private agricultural industry, as regulations are expected to include reducing livestock and buying up some farms whose animals produce large amounts of ammonia. The government, in a statement last month, admitted, quote, the honest message is that not all farmers can continue their business. <sighs> you guys, history makes it very clear what happens when people on the left think that they know better than food producers, farmers, agricultural workers, and try and take it over in the name of just general efficiency, uh, or in the name of the people to collectivize it in a communist way, or now what we're seeing is these leftists want to collectivize and put the government in charge of food production and creation and growth, all in the name of climate change. <sighs> History just makes it very clear that that doesn't work out very well, and it will lead to famine and to the death of millions if they do it again the same way they did in the last century, the 20th century. Millions of people died, and when you see these dictators, let me just say this. When you see these dictators and their death tolls from Mao Zedong uh, and the rest of them, Joseph Stalin, all of these dictators, yes, they killed their political opponents and they threw them into camps and they did some really horrible things in a violent and aggressive way. But what's often overlooked are the terrible policies that they implemented where they tried to put the government in charge of the farms and in charge of agriculture and food production and other basic necessities. It leads to a scarcity crisis and then that leads to famine where Everybody starts dying of starvation. That is why the death toll in communist countries controlled by people on the left becomes so, 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 so high. So we see this crackdown. Uh, apparently the agricultural sector is not the only industry to voice its displeasure. And they are joining in solidarity or they're being joined in solidarity by Dutch fishermen. So I think that's kind of cool because the, sh the fishermen <laughs> have begun using their ships to block ports throughout the country. So good for them. Um, Despite their large numbers and commitment to freedom, the article says, Dutch farmers have begun to feel the wrath of the government. On Monday, police deployed tear gas and dogs to break up protests in cities where farmers reportedly used tractors to block off a distribution center. There's now reports of police firing upon demonstrators, even firing shooting at farmers in their tractors just for peacefully protesting. The increasingly heavy-handed response from the Dutch government is beginning to resemble that of the Canadian federal government, which employed totalitarian tactics to crack down on citizens protesting state-mandated COVID-19 vaccinations earlier this year. If you guys remember, that was wild. Now, what the article author, Sean Fleetwood from The Federalist, says is that elitism knows no borders. This is the death of the West. The World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, Klaus Schwab, and the rest of these absolute crazy people would rather see a society controlled by force than by choice, and a global society at that. They do not like American sovereignty. The elites of America would rather bow down to them and get rich off of it and get more powerful from it than continue to protect American sovereignty. America is a society of choice, not force. But during the era of COVID, we continued to see just how many people in our country no longer understand how important it is to fight against tyranny and force. We now have a, a concerning number of people in this population in our country who would rather see force used than choice in our country because they are scared and they're choosing a false sense of security over freedom. It's very, very dangerous. This all goes back to the failed classrooms and our public education system. And I can't remember who it was. One of the people that I follow on Instagram posted a really cool quote a couple years ago when this all started to happen and the quote started to come out or the statistics started to come out that a startling number of Americans, especially people on the left, support things like vaccine mandates and the firing of people if you'd refuse to get it. Uh, and I remember and it was something of like we live amongst tyrants. 
We live among little tiny tyrants. In our neighborhoods, average Americans, they are so indoctrinated, so far removed from human history, and so ignorant and unaware of basic history, economics, and policy that they don't see a problem with encouraging our government to abandon structure and security that the checks and balances all in favor of a more centralized form of government coming out of Washington, D.C., the decrease of state and local power, and the increase of force over choice. It's elitism, and it has no borders, is what Sean Fleetwood said. So I just wanted to give him a shout out because this is really, really good. He closes his article with something. It says, whether it's the Netherlands or Canada, the story is the same across the globe. Over, over the past several years, elitists occupying positions of power within governments have grown accustomed to imposing their will on ordinary citizens. It's just awesome. And what he says at the end, make no mistake, if the Dutch farmer protesters let their foot off the gas for one second, the state will not hesitate to shove their alarmist degrowth policies down the people's throats without remorse. Any form of surrender will likely continue to enable more overreaching policies, which will undoubtedly infringe upon the everyday lives of Dutch people. Now we're seeing the collapse of the economy over there in the Netherlands. We're going to continue if they push forward with these green policies, these anti-food, anti-science green policies, that will destroy the agricultural sector in that country, in that region, you will see massive problems. And if we see them try and do the same in America, the way they talk about how they want to do, like AOC with the Green New Deal, we will see the same collapse. We are not exempt from a leftist takeover via policy. And if you look at the the history of how these people come to power, even in democratic countries, you'll see that it doesn't have to be this violent takeover. All it takes is for them to slowly get a little government power, to start passing legislation, to start making changes to a constitution, and to start imposing their will via indoctrination in the class classroom and next thing you know our country doesn't look anything like it did 10 years ago and we're already starting to see that aren't we um that being said i have some great news for you bill gates just bought more farmland in america because apparently he didn't have enough of it uh he already owns over two hundred and sixty-nine thousand acres across dozens of states in the country and that makes him the largest private owner of farmland in america Most recently, he purchased 2,100 acres of prime North Dakota farmland, or at least a group tied to him did, and that makes some in the state very concerned that they're being exploited by the ultra-wealthy. So um, he owns less. This is interesting. He's the largest private owner of farmland, but this still means that he owns less than 1% of the nation's total farmland, which is... I mean, we must have a massive amount of farmland in that case. I mean, he owns 269,000 acres. So right now, North Dakota's attorney general has asked the trust involved in the purchase to explain how it plans to use the land in order to meet rules outlined in the state's anti-corporate farming law. So we're going to see the, uh, the play out of this. But this also comes right as massive amounts of American farmland and just general land is being purchased by communist China, especially in Texas. I remember because my house is near San Antonio and a couple hours away, communist China had recently purchased last year when I was living there, um, recently purchased a lot of acreage right next to a military location in Texas. And everybody in the area was pretty concerned by it. That's in the know. So this is something we should be paying attention to. I wonder what state jurisdiction is with preventing a communist regime from buying property in the state? And what is the role of our government at certain levels in in protecting our country and our people from these potential threats? You got to wonder. I've got to look more into that. Now, last story, you guys. This one's just funny because now I'm all stressed out after all these topics. Sorry, I picked a bunch of negative ones. I'm like, hey, Bill Gates is buying all the farmland. We've got a massive mental health crisis leading to mass shootings all the time. And there's an invasion at the border. Let's do a fun story to end it. <laughs> um, okay, Libs of TikTok, my favorite gal. Libs of TikTok, now writing articles. Good for her. Queer-owned business shut down by employees for not being woke enough. You guys, the moral of this story is never bend the knee to the woke mob. They will eat you up just like they do in every communist uprising. They go after their own. Um, let's see. Mina's World, the cafe in Philadelphia that prided itself in being, quote, queer owned, has officially closed its doors after a woke employee revolt. (laughs) What is that? 
The cafe was owned by Kate and Sonam, two queer activists who started Mina's in an effort to create an inclusive coffee shop. I don't even think I can read this. However, their employees have claimed that the owners are anti-black and gentrifiers. Gentrifier is a woke term used to describe those who purposely contribute to the displacement of low-income families. Mina's World was located just around the corner from Malcolm X Park in Philadelphia and employed mostly minority workers. So, a small local business that employed local workers is a gentrifying coffee shop. Ironically, prior to the allegations from employees, one of the owners spoke to Bon Appetit about the opening of Mina's World and said when she worked at different coffee shops, quote, white ownership neglected to protect their black and trans employees. I knew there needed to be a space where you could have an amazingly made cup of coffee that's not whitewashed. Fast forward two years and employees of Mina's World have put out a public statement where they claimed they were suffering from a plethora of systemic woes as a result of the alleged gentrification, including employer opposition and anti-blackness. What do these things mean? Um, So here's the, they made a little Instagram page, MW Workers. And they released some statements. It says, workers at Mina's World have long been in a labor right... Guys, remember, this is a coffee shop employees. Have long been in a labor rights struggle with owners, Kate and Sonam, for well over a year. We are facing systemic employer opposition, manipulation, abuse of power, exploitation, anti-blackness, ableism, hostility, and complete disregard for our livelihoods. Again, coffee shop employees. We have been navigating a radical accountability process with Kate and Sonim with the support and guidance of the Black and Brown Workers Cooperative for the last few months. And they end the message with, <laughs> sorry, with, with righteous fire, the workers of Mina's world. Coffee shop employees said that they're facing hostility in the workplace and abuse of power and exploitation and then sign off with righteous fire. The workers of Mina's World Coffee Shop. (laughs) So then they list a list of grievances that they're going through. Thank you so much for spelling it out for us. They are going through uh, anti-blackness in a multitude of forms and occasions. Ableism in the form of inaccessibility, etc., etc. Exploitation of labor and denial of promised wage increases. Abuse of power. Manipulation lack of financial transparency, tokenization as a way to appear safe by association. The article says, as it couldn't get any worse, the employees then demanded that the owners, quote, redistribute the business to them. So then the, so the coffee shop employees get so mad about their working conditions that they demand the owners of the private coffee shop Give the employees control of the business. Redistribute the business. We have a little communists on our hands here. They listed demands next. Public acknowledgement and accountability for grievances and harm caused. Immediate payment to staff that have had payment withheld, including back pay. And then this is the big one. Owners redistribute the business and begin the process of transforming the business into a cooperative. I love how that's just an extra bullet. It's a whole list of like, we would like a public apology. Oh, and then just redistribute your business to us, please. Thank you very much. So then the owners respond to all this mess in a hostage style. This is so funny. Lives of TikTok says... They responded to their employees' demands in a hostage-style video in which they repeatedly apologized for being gentrifiers. One of the owners spoke as they sat next to each other, and they said, We're going live as part of a radical accountability process. We're complicit in the gentrification and anti-blackness on 52nd Street. We put our community at risk with our presence as well as our workers. So a local coffee shop that employs local people what put the community at risk by hiring local workers the two owners agreed to attempt to hand over ownership of minas saying with the guidance of the workers and black and brown workers collective we are trying to raise funds to buy the business and turn it over to our staff 
the hostile takeover quickly backfired because now the building where Mina's World was once housed is listed for sale and the business is shut down. The owner's surrender to the outrage shows a point proven again and again by libs of TikTok. No matter how many times you bend the knee to the mob, you will never be able to adhere to their insatiable standards for progressive enlightenment. No matter how much of an ally you are, you will never be safe from becoming just another trophy head on the wall of wokeism. Oh my goodness. Well, if you want to buy the building, you guys, it's for sale. $425,000 on 52nd Street in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That'd be funny. We should put something funny in that building. Um, You guys never bow to the mob, but at the same time, why would we try and give advice to radical woke people anyways? You could just dig your own grave while you're at it because the left eats the left. So you guys, I hope that was a fun one for you. Thanks for listening. Uh, If you guys want, please do me a favor and subscribe and leave a worded review on Apple Podcasts. I really appreciate it. This is also on Spotify though. Um, But I hope you have a wonderful week. Bye-bye. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.